Welcome. This is Barry Baines from Baines Law, a legal miscellany where we regularly podcast about cases and legal issues, as well as talking to professionals and others who have experience of our legal system. Our guest in this episode is a lawyer who specialises in public and regulatory law. In the government, legal service and private practice, he has acted for a wide variety of regulators and public bodies, including most healthcare regulators. He has held senior legal, policy and operational in-house roles at a number of public bodies, including as General Counsel of the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority. Head of Regulation at the General Osteopathic Council, Assistant Director of Scrutiny and Quality at the Professional Standards Authority for Health and Social Care, and Interim Director of Legal at the Equality and Human Rights Commission. His practical experience of adjudication issues extends to serving as Secretary to the Statutory Fitness to Practice Committee of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society of Great Britain and he was draftsman to the committee chaired by Lord Carlyle that developed the first case management protocol for the General Medical Council. He has drafted statutory instruments, rules, regulations and fitness to practice licensing procedures for many health and social care regulatory bodies. He is probably best known currently as the lead author and general editor of the Regulation of Healthcare Professions, Law, Principle and Process, published by Sweet and Maxwell. We extend a warm welcome today to David Gomez. Well, good morning, David. Thank you very much for joining us today. And I wonder if I could start off by talking about the wide variety of roles you've held in the health sector. You must have seen significant changes and themes over the years. What can you tell us about that? Thank you, Barry. It's very kind of you to have me on. Yes, I mean, I think over the years, uh, regulation has become a bit of a growth industry. If you think, first of all, the most obvious thing to think about is the increased volume of complaints. That's partly due to the decline of trust in professionals, documented by Baroness O'Neill in her seminal talk a few years ago. The move away from medical paternalism and the internet. There's so much information about redress and complaints procedures now. And patients are more assertive. that they're, they're no longer the passive recipients of medical care. They have a... a a real interest in, in, in the outcomes. The other thing to note, of course, is the increased number of professions being brought into statutory regulation and uh, the takeover of representative bodies. Think about the ATPC, and that has about 15 uh, professions uh, that it regulates. Another key thing, and a driver change, was, the, if I could put it this way, the increased professionalism of regulation in fitness practice proceedings uh, that was brought about by the Human Rights Act and the transfer jurisdiction from the uh, Judicial Committee of the Privy Council to the Admin Court. You remember the old days, the Judicial Committee was very civilised, very kind of a sedate. Um, but the Admin Court took no prisoners, really. Suddenly, regulators were losing, losing hard. Uh, the charges weren't drafted properly. The cases were taking too long. The committees didn't have objective guarantees. The, the reasons weren't sufficient. Uh, and so regulators had to up their game. They had to really kind of uh, professionalise their fitness practice processes. Uh, most significant thing, I think, is the, the move away from this backward-looking process of professional misconduct and, and deficient professional performance. So what I think this, this, this Janus-face concept of uh, fitness practice looking both backwards and forwards, and this important emphasis on the process of remediation 
And that has led, in some cases, to a real focus in, on some regulators in trying to divert cases out of the fitness practice uh, process if there's evidence of remediation. And at the same time, I think there's a general focus on professionalism uh, and revalidation. Uh, and now, of course, the key thing, as you know from work with dentists, uh, is the idea of upstreaming. That regulation should start right at the beginning uh, rather than at the end, which, where you're almost dealing with failure of regulation. So all in all, I think what we have now is a more forward-looking and preventative process to change from the model of rear view barn door regulation that we have had traditionally in the UK, I think. Yes, there's a great emphasis on, on training now, isn't there? Getting the yes. proper professional qualifications, keeping those qualifications up to date. Yeah. Uh, but you mentioned the way it's proliferated. And really, that brings us on to the fact that there are 10 statutory regulators, aren't there, overseeing the regulation and registration of people who work in the health and social care. And talking about doctors, dentists, pharmacists, social workers, etc., and each have their own rules. Perhaps that doesn't make for the best approach to regulation. There have been various attempts to change the system, but so far none has been successful. <laughs> I think that's absolutely, that's absolutely right. Yes, um, indeed. Reform of healthcare regulation has been an ever-receding horizon. The, the, the Law Commission's proposals back in 2014 are well known. The reality is that there is a two-stage system of professional regulation in the UK. Uh, at one end, there is the kind of all singing, dancing, fitness practice process uh, of various kinds held by the majority of regulators. And in the other end, with osteopaths and chiropractors, there's still that that's backward-looking process of fitness practice, uh, of uh, professional misconduct, which doesn't allow for remediation at all. The reality is that healthcare is increasingly being delivered in multidisciplinary teams. There needs to be a greater convergence between systems regulators and the regulators of individual professions. There remains a live and unresolved tension between the aspirations of a no-blame, open investigation culture in the NHS and the reality of the focus on individual accountability and therefore blame in the fitness practice misconduct proceedings of the individual regulators. There's obviously too much regulation, too much law. We need to cull, I think, the number of regulatory actors and focus on effective and preventative regulation. And one way to do that is to reduce the number of cases in the system. And we do that by raising the threshold of seriousness and by focusing on risk. We should be asking, I would say, suggest not whether the practitioner did it, but rather whether the practitioner is dangerous. But within the existing legislative framework, there are things we could do better. Uh, we do not need new legislation to ensure our registers are accurate and up to date or to undertake a proper investigation or keep complainants informed of the progress of complaint, to serve the case papers and unused material promptly, to draft adequate charges or produce a sufficiently reasoned decision. I think sometimes reform and legislation is used as a kind of a scapegoat, when in reality we could do much better with the existing processes. Indeed. Do you have anything to say about the thresholds for investigations on that tack? Because at present, the regulators have extremely low thresholds without any concern for the proportionality of the regulator, it seems to me. Do you have anything to say about that? I do. I drafted the first threshold criteria for the, the, the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, as it then was. It was then taken on by the General Pharmaceutical Council. And when I was at the Osipath, uh, one of the things I, I introduced was threshold criteria. We need to get away from all these sorts of cases of rudeness, and effectively competition cases, rudeness, sleeping on duty, things of that kind, and focus on risk. I feel very strongly about this. There's, there's, sometimes I, I'd be, I'd be, when I was at the PSA, I'd be reading cases and think, why are we here? This is a case for the employer. 
This is an issue of contract. It's not a public interest. And the PSA back in 2017 called for national conversation. Uh, We still haven't had that yet. Um, There needs to be a discussion, a conversation with the public, uh, the patients uh, and the professions about, you know, when is the matter serious enough to refer to the regulator? Uh, At the moment, uh, you know, the fitness practice process is just being choked full of all these cases. And it's in no one's interest, really. And of course, the cost of all this falls mainly on the regulator, doesn't it? Indeed. And it's heartbreaking if you look at the, the accounts of, and the public reports of these regulators, the proportion of public money being spent on lawyers' fees. I mean, it's good for lawyers, but it, it isn't good, I think, for the public interest. Yes. Most health regulators have their own fitness to practice panels who decide contested issues and determine sanctions. The exception to that, I suppose, is the General Medical Council who send their cases to the Medical Practitioners Tribunal, which is a sort of arm's length adjudicator. What do you think of the advantages and disadvantages of these slightly different systems? Well, there are no advantages, it seems to me. I mean, do we need different systems? I think increasingly healthcare is being delivered in multidisciplinary teams. Uh, It is not impossible to envisage a situation in which something goes wrong with the care of a patient and the surgeon, the theater nurse, the pharmacist and the paramedics all face proceedings. I think in these sort of circumstances, a single panel should be able to hear the sort of case to ensure that all appropriate evidence is before it and to ensure consistency of outcomes. In relation to sanctions, I mean, you remember the case of the, 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 the rugby nurse, the doctor. Um, Indeed, uh, and yeah, the, I do. And the, the concern about the, the, the perceived difference in outcomes. Any nurse would tell you that doctors appear to be treated more leniently in fitness practice proceedings than nurses. I think if we are to retain these separate panels, then public confidence can only be maintained uh, the creation of an inter-regulatory sanctions advisory panel. This is something that Dame, Sh- Dame Janet in her shipment report kind of encouraged. Uh, I'd go further. Um, I'd have a panel staffed by regulators, patient, public and registered representatives, academics and experts on sentencing who are charged specifically with creating consistent evidence-based sanctions, guidance and guideline cases for use across all the professions and which is legitimized by a process of public comp- uh, you know, consultation. The, the Solicitors Regulation Authority went some way to that, towards that. They had a conversation with the professions a few years ago saying, you know, what, what do you think the tariff should be for this sort of case? I think we need to formalise that and roll that out across the healthcare. There needs to be uh, real consistency in sanctions. Uh, and the indicative sanctions guidance has, has had its day. Um, it's not granular enough to deal with the kind of cases that we're getting now, I think. Uh, and, and a few cases, you know, there's been judicial adverse judicial comment about the indicative sanctions guidance, particularly in relation to dishonesty. Yes, you mentioned the Solicitors Regulation Authority, of course, which I also have experience of. And you will have noticed, of course, they have a proposal at the moment to increase their own fines, which they can levy internally. Do you yes. think that's a good system? I think it's a useful way of dealing with administrative errors. I, I think the risk profile of professionals is different. In healthcare, I don't think administrative errors should be before the fitness practice committees. And I would, if we're going to take a serious grip on this and raise the threshold, I don't think administrative errors should, should cross the threshold of something that the regulator is looking at in, in, in healthcare. It's about risk and about safety. And it's, you know, mere, purely administrative errors should be dealt with the trust level or, or by, the, by the employer, it seems to me. Yeah, I agree. They're quite different. Now, can we come on to equality of arms in fitness to practice hearings? Yes. Usually, but not always, doctors, dentists and pharmacists, for example, 
will be able to afford subscriptions to professional bodies who will ensure that if they face fitness practice proceedings, they will be represented usually by an experienced junior barrister, or in some cases by Queen's Council. I expect you've seen at the GMC, for example, the more likely to get a consultant represented by a Queen's Council and perhaps a more junior doctor by a junior barrister. At the other end of the scale, we will see many people regulated by example, the Health and Care Professions Council, paramedics and the like, who can't afford such representation and will have to speak for themselves. Is this a fair procedure when the regulator can always choose to be represented by council if it wishes? Now, in the old days, remember, attempts were made to, to level the scale to the good office of the legal assessor. Uh, he or she would take a more proactive role uh, with an unrepresented registrant, discussing the, the case in detail with them beforehand, ensuring the registrants understood the procedure and being alive to ensure that the registrant's case was put to witnesses and the committee during the hearing. Um, with the advent of legal chairs, of course, that's no longer possible. Certainly not to the same extent, and the legal chair can hardly go into huddle with the registrant, leaving the case presenter excluded. To answer your question, no, it is not fair. I have read many decisions where I have felt personally that a different and better result might well have been achieved for the registrant had legal representation been available. The rules of most regulators now are flexible enough to allow these Mackenzie friends and trade union representatives. The bar pro bono unit offers some assistance, and it's difficult to hold off. Uh, but ultimately, I think this is a problem that the regulator doesn't have the resources to address. Ultimately, any increase in expenditure must come out of registrants fees and the profession as a whole, and it would therefore require the profession as a whole to find a solution to this problem. Uh, But I would add that equality of arms starts well before representation. Whether regulator can and should make a difference is ensuring timely and fair disclosure of the case against registrant, and particularly service of the unused material It is shocking that many of the healthcare regulators do not have a published disclosure policy or internal procedures to ensure fairness uh, or need quality control. I think this is an area the PSA should take a real active role in enforcing. Yes, compare it with the criminal law system. Yes. where um, we've We've seen the injustices which have occurred there. And of course, the injustices in the healthcare system can be huge, can't they? Indeed, indeed. Um, and doubly so, because sometimes cases have been referred from the criminal system. Indeed. So I wonder if we can come on for a moment to consider the role of the PSA, Professional Standards Authority, what I describe as the super regulator, which you know much about and which oversees the performance of the healthcare regulators. It regularly publishes reports on the performance of each regulator. And if it believes a registrant has been too leniently dealt with by a fitness practice panel, it may itself intervene and appeal itself the decision to the High Court. Now, the government's indicated it proposes to remove that right of appeal. Do you think the PSA has an effective role? And what do you think about the government's proposal? Can I, can I divide the answer into two bits? There's two oh, bits. I do indeed, yes. Yeah. yeah, effective role and uh, the government's proposals. So talk about effectiveness. I think that we must remember the PSA has been through many iterations. It has its genesis as a recommendation in the Kennedy Report for a body which was envisaged to act a bit as a patient's voice. I think one of the real benefits of the, the Council for Healthcare Regulatory Excellence, as it then was, the process of bringing the regulators out of their silos and effectively knocking heads together, sharing best practice and adjudication, uh, getting the regulators to adopt things like indicative sanctions guidance, for example. I think they were the heady days of what is now the PSA. And they made some, 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 some real achievements, some easy wins there. In its current role, the PSA has made important contributions to thought leadership and the purpose of regulation. The concept of right-touch regulation example is a good example. And that's got two important steps, which are, I think, often overlooked 
including some of the recent consultations in the field. And these are the need to identify the problem before the solution and the need to check for unintended consequences. They've also produced very interesting work on risk profiles uh, justifying statutory regulation. And that all feeds into this ongoing debate about form, whether some professions should remain under statutory regulation. And if so, what's the level of statutory scrutiny? One of the real benefits, of course, is the idea of this overarching viewpoint, the bird's eye view. And the key tool there was the performance review of all the regulators. As part of that, the PSA used to audit the regulators' casework, but that has long been discontinued. And the process of review, I regret, has become tired and subject to gaming by the regulators. In the old days, the PSA would issue the, the annual report, which had all the regulators in a huge, massive document, and you could compare like with like. Now the reviews come out at different times of the year, and it's impossible to compare meaningful data in terms of stats, objective reporting. It's apples and pears. You know, there's a lot of gaming going on. The PSA shied away from dictating best practice, if you like. There's no benchmark of what good looks like. I personally do not see the value of reporting as end in itself. The purpose should be to drive improvement, not merely report and performance. I take an obvious example. The NMC is a very different organization nowadays. However, it is a matter of public record that there have been long periods when the NMC has been a failing organization. I do not think the PSA or the Privy Council, which was the ultimate backstop, um, have been effective in holding the NMC to account or ensuring that regulatory objectives were achieved during this time. The levers could have been pulled and inference brought to bear. This was not done. I think there could have been a more concerted effort to buddy up good and less good regulators to ensure that they could learn from each other and drive improvements. I also think the PSA could take a more proactive role in driving up quality in fitness practice proceedings, including sanctions as discussed in disclosure, and ensuring that BME registrants are not being disadvantaged in the system in terms of representation and outcome. Moving towards the second part, the, the government proposals, I guess the saying is that the hard cases make bad law. You recall, of course, that the, the controversy of the Bauer Garba case. I created a huge backlash and there are understandable concerns about the way in which the GMC exercised its own right of appeal. Yes. However, if you look at the number of cases appealed by both regulators, the GMC and the PSA, and the results achieved, the GMC appears to have a better success rate than the PSA in terms of the number of successful appeals brought and over a much shorter period. And if this is the case, it seems an odd thing to do to take away this power from the GMC, where the public interest appears to be successfully championed in the majority of cases. The PSA does not appear to have the same appetite for challenge as the GMC. It has to be said that the way in which the PSA has exercised the right of appeal is opaque. There are no published criteria on what sort of cases it will take or the circumstances in which it will exercise its right of appeal. The Section 29 appeal case minutes on the PSA website do not provide much illumination or provide an accurate guide to how the PSA is likely to exercise its discretion in a future case. I think this is unacceptable for an overarching regulator, which was envisaged in part acting as a patient's champion. What I will say is that when you look at the cases appealed by both the GMC and the BSA, it raises concerns about whether BME registrants are disproportionately overrepresented in the appeal process. I put it no higher than that for now, but I would suggest that there's a real and urgent need for effective research to determine quantitatively and qualitatively whether or not there's a problem here. What the government's proposing in the March 2021 consultation is a sleight of hand. More cases will be determined by regulators using case examiners rather than fitness practice committees. And it is proposed that these case examiner decisions will be outside the remit and jurisdiction of the PSA. And so the section 29 jurisdiction will effectively wither on the vine to be replaced by regulators having an internal registrar review power. I'm not sure personally that, that is a recipe for increasing public or registered confidence. Going back to the origins of the PSA, there is a need for a body to be able to challenge fitness practice decisions made by the regulator in the public interest and in the interest of patients and their families. 
In the final analysis, though, it seems to me he's not so much which body exercises the power, but rather how that power is exercised. And there must be clear and transparent thresholds and criteria. Thank you for that explanation, David. It uh, seems to make a lot of sense. So can I turn to the COVID pandemic? There have, through necessity, been many remote hearings conducted by regulators in their disciplinary processes, and it's caused us to rethink a little. The Health and Care Professions Council is consulting on holding the majority of its hearings remotely in the future, and Social Care England is considering holding all of its hearings remotely. Uh, what do you consider to be the advantages and disadvantages of these proposals? Well, we've all had to learn new skills, haven't we? Us old fogies are here chatting on Zoom. I think the quick wins for regulators and lawyers are obvious. Hearings of the internet cost costs and travel expenses. It frees up hearing rooms for other uses. Bundles can be shared and marked up electronically. Some systems allow automatic transcripts to produce from the hearing recording. IT may be less intimidatory for certain witnesses, and they're giving evidence you know, by video link, and thereby may actually improve the quality of evidence before the committee. However, those with poor access to high quality IT or those who are unable to get to grips with the new technologies or potentially those who are disabled, I think can be quite seriously disadvantaged. Then there are concerns about the integrity of the hearing process. Who else is in the room with a witness? Are they being coached? And when IT goes wrong, it can go wrong spectacularly. There's always concern about confidentiality and IT breaches. And conversely, IT in your, your home is intrusive and may well add to the stress of the proceedings. And whilst there is a facility of online breakout rooms in some, some systems, uh, it may be difficult to actually engage with counsel or your legal representative or to, to, to get their attention while they're in full fight during the hearing. I think there is a growing consensus. I mean, just anecdotally talking to people and reading the conversation in the Gazette, assessing the credibility of a witness over video link is not quite the same as through a screen. It's somehow curated through the screen. The committee do not have the same opportunity to see and assess the witness's demeanor, the mannerisms, or reaction to the same extent as with a live witness in the box before them. I think I would say the jury's out, and while the technology is fine for administrative hearings, where the registrant does not wish to attend or is not required to attend, or review hearings and the like, I, th I would suggest the best practice would be to offer the registrant a choice whether to take the, the, have a, a video hearing or not. And ideally, the opportunity to travel to a regional venue with state-of-the-art technology available Rather than have, you know, everyone connecting from, from their homes, there ought to be some kind of regional hubs with, you know, state-of-the-art video conferencing facilities that can be used. Um, it was still cut cost. Committees don't need to attend. Uh, but you, at least that way, are able to uh, ensure that there's no one in the room with the witness and, and, and safeguard the integrity of the process, as well as safeguard, you know, the, the quality of the IT available. I'm interested to hear what you say about more local venues, because not so long ago, the General Medical Council, for example, had hearings in London as well as in Manchester, whereas now they're all in Manchester. Yeah. And the Nursing and Midwifery Council used to travel around the country generally and hold local hearings. Yes. Oh, yes, sizes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree. I think you, know, you can't win. Wherever you, you cite the hearing, people have got to travel. And it, it, it's, it's, it's a cost, it's a cost. And if you have, you know, rent an office with decent IT facilities uh, in a number of major cities and towns, I think you'll still cut costs and, and do a service to the registrants that you're, you're there to, to serve in a way, as well as protect. As always, it's balancing cost with justice, isn't it? Yes, yes, indeed. indeed. One of the principal drawbacks of fitness practice proceedings is the inordinate length of time it takes for some cases to go through the process before they reach a panel hearing. 
you know, we hear of two years, three years, four years, or even more. Is there, in your view, a better way of dealing with fitness to practice cases? Yes, and we've touched on this. I think it absolutely involves a radical change of mindset. I go back to this idea of the national conversation with the public and the profession, and it's raising the threshold of seriousness, the point at which a matter is referred to the national regulator. The reality is we have an aging population with increasing demands on the healthcare system at a time when the healthcare system is under siege for a perfect storm of COVID, Brexit, uh, chronic underfunding over a sustained period of time. The reality is we need our healthcare professionals like never before. And it may be time to move, I suggest, towards a more utilitarian approach. Uh, as long as healthcare professionals are safe and competent and do not pose a current risk to the public, perhaps we should be more forgiving of human frailty. I, I couldn't agree more, David. I mean, raising the threshold of seriousness uh, must be important for the future. In injecting some proportionality, and as you say, yes. being more concerned about the safety of practitioners than punishing. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, we need to move away from a model of professionalism to a model of risk. I think. I think the it, it, it's uh, the last the events of the last couple of years have showed us just how much we need healthcare professionals and, and the dedication. And sometimes the juggernaut needs to be carefully moderated to ensure it doesn't become aggressive. Indeed. David, thank you very much for sharing your views about the process today. I'm sure everyone concerned with healthcare regulation will be enlightened by them and will give uh, plenty of food for thought and discussion in the future. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for watching, Barry. Take care. Thank you for listening to Bain's Law. Listen out for future podcasts where we will continue to discuss issues of interest to the legal community. If there is a professional perspective that you would like to share, get in touch via our website at www.barrybaines.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Baines Law. We look forward to presenting to you again very soon on Baines Law.